Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is HashMap on Tap. I'm Kelly, he's Randy. It's a great day for a show and I think we've got a really fun topic today. I am pretty pumped about this one. We're gonna be talking about data quality. All right, that isn't that exciting. But we are gonna be also talking about Snowflake Data Profiler. That is exciting. So uh, Randy, how are you doing? What's going on? How are you feeling? How's the day going? And what is on tap for you this afternoon? Man, that is that is a lot. It is Friday afternoon, so I'm feeling great. Uh, had a killer week here at HashMap, and I am drinking White Claw, an old favorite of mine, uh, especially here in the the kind of the heat of summer. Maybe the last the twilight of summer here coming to an end, getting towards fall. I'm excited for fall, and it is the Ruby Grapefruit, which in the past I've been particularly um, critical of because I, I just don't <laughs> like that flavor. But it's growing on me, man. It's doing good. What about you? What are you having? I've got a Carbach Crawford Bach. I guess uh, baseball season is open, sort of, with uh, COVID. Okay. So this has the Houston Astros logo, Crawford boxes, all that. It's got a, I would just say, I'll call it classic. It is a classic ballpark beer. Nothing fancy, but it gets the job done. So enjoying that this afternoon. Yeah, no, that's that's good. I always like to take a little trip down the, the classic beer route kind of experience our roots a bit but okay so today we're talking about data quality which yeah. i think is in one way or another going to touch most people in the data stack whether you're a data engineer you're an iot engineer all the way up to the, the analyst the the bi developer and consumer so when we're working in the data analytics space typically what's the number one challenge we see kelly I mean, it's poor data quality, honestly. Oh, yeah. that, that's what it is. So here's the thing. We we see this. Stat. This is not a new stat. We didn't come up with this. But we know coming out of this, uh, you look at data engineers, you look at data scientists, 80% of their time is spent cleaning data rather than creating insights with the data, creating outcomes with the data. It is a huge problem. And it, it actually gets worse. You look at you know, you look at structured data sets, you go, oh, that should be really clean. No, there's issues with structured data sets. Then you go to semi-structured data sets, JSON and CSV, et cetera. The farther you get towards unstructured, you know, true unstructured, the worse the problem gets. So yeah, how do you get out of that? Number one, how do you identify the problem so that you're not making decisions off of really bad quality data that you think is good, right? Yeah. Which leads to not really that accurate of insights. And more importantly, how do I uh, recognize it, get visibility, and then address it? But to me, that's the biggest challenge. What What are you seeing out there? You know, I, th I think that's right. And, and not all the challenges we see go by the name of data quality, right? It uh, goes by many names. But we see it caused by things like siloing at large companies, where the people who maybe own and operate the operational store, they're separate from the people who do the analytics. So this random column that changes data types every once in a while. We don't know what that is, whatever, just ignore it, right? That kind of stuff is really common. Uh, so no one really knows what the data is doing, whether it's accurate, whether the aggregations that have been built upon it are appropriate, right? Maybe an SME knows that you can't do an average this specific way because of the nature of the data. You've got to do a different kind of pre-computation. So these are all things that wrap up into data quality. Uh, it has lots of causes, but one note or common theme I see is that it's rarely a direct technical challenge. It's often uh, a result of organizational failures or communication issues, which, I mean, at a large corporation, you're never really going to get away from. Yeah, and, it, and you're right. I mean, it comes in all, all sizes and shapes. I, I was speaking to a data engineering manager at a large organization the other day. We were talking about the challenges of data quality because we mentioned Profiler, and he was saying that, 
because of the issues associated with their data sets, and they've got some really um, you know modern platforms and everything, they have had to, for their management reporting now, they've had to caveat their reports, their dashboards and everything really? with a data quality disclaimer. It said, well, there's this maybe, you know, it, it mileage could vary on this. It, it could be or it couldn't be accurate, but literally a caveat data quality disclaimer. I mean, that's a data trust issue. It's a tough spot to be in, I think, Randy. Exactly. And when you're working in environments like analytics environments where you're doing some amount of experimentation, you're taking a leap of faith in some cases, if you can't build trust with your end users, they will ignore what you've built. And then, it, like we say all the time, you're doing data science theater. It's just for fun. It's just for PowerPoints. People aren't going to make behavior changes. Uh, and, and, you know, I see it all the time. People chronically underestimate how much time is wasted in their organizations on cleaning data, on data quality issues. Beginning of this year, we're at a massive healthcare company in California. Mm. And we're doing discovery with their individual business units. So we, we sit in, do an hour discussion with the different teams and the managers. And they don't, they don't usually get together in a room like this, right? So we're in there and we get to ask the new questions. And we're asking the people, the actual, uh, the, the employees on the team, the engineers, the data scientists, how much time are you spending? They, without, without blinking, 90, 95% of our time is spent on this. Yeah. It takes three months to refresh a port. And the managers, they couldn't believe it. They, they were like, no, they'd like question the employees. They're, they're like, there's no way you're spending 80% of your time. And they're like, okay, if you say so, yeah. but I, I mean, I am. So across the board, it's not just that you're wasting time on this or you might make a bad decision. It, it's eating your ability to do actual value add work. The things that I think most people, when they got into data, they thought they would be doing, right? Doing the dashboarding, doing the AI ML development, building the next generation of intelligent decision-making, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when you talk about that next generation, you're talking generally some very large platforms, large data sets and everything. But you're right. I mean, data data quality issues come in all all shapes and sizes. Just quick, quick story that I was thinking about the other day. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of trade shows over the years. We're pretty much you know sequestered at the moment, but a lot of trade shows over the years. Everybody's got a badge. You got this little scanner. Everybody comes up. You talk for a little while scan the badge, you know, hope, hopefully you can create something that's it's it's interesting and compelling, have a follow-up conversation later. So you've got this contact information that goes into the into the database. And if you have four, three, four, five people there at the trade show, whatever it may be, or uh, much less a really large company could have a hundred people there, not everybody's gonna get to talk to anybody. So this data that's going in is, is really critical. The problem is it, it's not a technology problem. Those scanners are really accurate. It's for me, did I put in my first name and last name and company name? Did I put, it, put in a personal email? Maybe if if I'm HashMap, um, I'm not really all that interested in you know 19 other consulting companies. I'd rather talk to end users. Right? I mean, there's all these different things that lead to a personalized experience about what is good data quality. No first name, no last name, all caps, all lowercase, all those kind of things. Yeah. So in order to ultimately interact with somebody from that standpoint, I've got to get them into a sales management system. But I don't want to put a bunch of trash in there. And I'm talking about, we're talking one spreadsheet right now. This is not a massive data data uh, set. This is one spreadsheet. So you start cleaning this thing yeah. and you spend an hour and another hour and another hour. We, we finally got so frustrated because, you know, we go to large shows. We'd have thousands of, of contacts. Uh, finally built a, a little Python app that would auto cleanse this thing. 
and get rid of null values, get rid of personal emails, get rid of out of, you know, get rid of hash map competitors, all those kind of things automatically save us tons of time. But yeah. I think I think about what we and I are talking today, that one little tiny data set in one spreadsheet, just that one challenge, that one data source. And then you 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 blow that out to the enterprise and the the challenges associated with making decisions and having that data trust are really really difficult and it can be super overwhelming. Yeah, I mean just millions gone yeah. down the drain, right? And for no good reason. So yeah. when we're thinking about data quality, something that comes up is like, what what do you mean by that? So Kelly, when you're thinking about data quality, how would you define it? So I think about data quality in a couple of different ways. Um, number one, I want, personally, I want highly curated data. I want it to be personalized to me. Obviously, I want to be able to trust the data. I want it to Got be it. believable, right? So if you say, I want it, number one, curated, give it to me, personalized, high quality, believable, trustable. And then I want it contextual. I, if I'm not interested in financials and all I'm interested in, in is sales and marketing information, then leave that stuff out. Make it germane to my business line, my business segment, only what I need. And I would say another component to data for me is make it accessible. Again, if I'm if I'm a data scientist and a data engineer, I'm having to spend 80% of my time culling through it, doing all this curation on it. That to me is not, yeah, well, it's out there, go get it. No, I, I want it usable. Usability is accessibility yeah. to me. And obviously the time, the timely factor too. I, I don't want it broken. I, I want it when I want it. I want it highly performing. I mean, that's my, that's my view. How, yeah. what do you, how do you think about defining good data quality? So all of those things you mentioned, I think they're valid definitions of data quality, right? So it's, it's about relevance. It's about timeliness. It's about um, contextualization, but it goes back further, right? To even get to that point, right? That's at the tip of the pyramid of all the massive amount of work you have to do to gather the data, to validate the data, to monitor it, to, to transform it in ways that are consumable to different audience groups. You got to understand who the audience is. Um, one quote I really like from U.S. You know, jurisprudence, we'll pull a little line here, is around how obscenity is defined, because that's a tricky problem, too. Mm. Uh, and uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously said about obscenity, perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so in describing what obscenity is, but I know it when I see it. And I think that's the same thing with data quality. There are some obvious things that call out to being data quality issues. Uh, however, it, it, it's the collection of things that you could never maybe necessarily put down in one cohesive set of rules. You know it when you see it. Yeah. And, and Randy, I mean, we're dealing with these large cloud data platforms, cloud data warehouses, cloud data lakes. These are all, when you think about it, this is all outside of the core system of record. I mean, the yeah. closer you go back to the system of record, the closer you go back to where data is actually generated, it becomes more trustable. I, I really believe that that is the, the truth at that point. How do you get that same trust level the further you get away? Number one, the further you get away from the system of record, and then number two, combining other data sets up into it that could get interpolated, could get, you know, massage, could get part, you <laughs> yeah. know, who, who knows what's going on. Uh, it's, it's just a really, really hard problem ultimately. Yeah. I think, I think this goes to a bit of a tools gap right now in the market for analytics warehouses around how we treat transformation, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a collection of different tools. My favorite is DBT right now that does transformations Love and they have a great answer for this. The advice I would give is make sure you formalize your expectations in a way that's testable. So um, 
as you get further away from the source, you need to continue to validate, have my timestamps change. That's a big one, right? Especially when you integrate with other systems that might use a different timestamp format, or they might store in different time zones, things of that nature. Um, and across the whole spectrum from source ingestion to ensure that the data is as fresh as you expect it to be, that it conforms to certain gut checks that you might have, you know, no null values, that's very common. Um, all the way up through your aggregations where you can check for things that just logically don't make any sense. Did we sell something for a net minus a thousand percent loss? It's possible, but it's unlikely. So let's go ahead and add a check there. So right. it's all about automated data quality checks all through the system that allow you to express your specific business needs, preferably in like a SQL context, because my data quality issues are not the same as yours. So the one size fix all tool, uh, I, I don't really trust that. Yeah, and there's so much money at stake here too, when you talk about the time invested into, into making decisions around data. I was looking at a uh, study, I, I want to say it was Forrester, I want to attribute it properly. I think it was Forrester's study last year. And you, you and I are a lot of times are looking at uh, marketing data sets, right? Whether it's with clients yep. we're doing uh, digital marketing projects with to help them make better decisions, uh, paid search, whatever those things are, or it's internally for our own business. And Forrester estimates based on the work that they've done that for marketers, they estimate that 21 cents, 21 cents of every media dollar spent by an organization in the last year was wasted due to poor data quality, just due to poor data quality. And so yeah. that translates in, into millions and millions of dollars for, you know, whether you're a midsize, a small company or, or a large enterprise, it just gets it just gets worse. So when you spend so much time, so much time, even if it's 20, 25, 30, 40 percent on managing data quality, it's 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 just such a huge problem to solve. So it feels like something that almost everybody needs to do. It feels like I guess I would ask, is it even a, is it a solvable problem? Is it solvable? You know, that's, that's a good question. Um I think it is it is addressable, certainly, that there are things you can do to mitigate the impact uh, and ensure that you don't do something uh, wholesale dangerous, right? Like uh, in an IoT context, you you increase temperature in an overpressured system and it explodes, right? There are certainly things you can do in those environments that can help. But will we ever have the system that is just magically always purified and ready to be consumed? I don't think so. I don't think you're going to be able to remove the human element of that. There's just too much contextualization that has to happen. Uh, but you can certainly get to a much better place where you're not wasting 21 cents of every dollar, right? That can be uh, addressed with a lot of automation, um, some more modern approaches to your data warehousing, and then maybe a better culture. Like we, we keep saying, it's not always the technology that's been a bottleneck. If you don't have DBT, you can still do automated data quality checks. But you got to build a, a culture where this is a valued and important piece of time because it's kind of an upfront investment. Yeah, it is. And, and I think you're right, too. You talked about it a couple of times, not necessarily being a, a technology issue. And I think about some of the projects we've worked on in the industrial space, specifically in oil and gas. There's a yeah. there's a thing called an API number, an American Petroleum Institute number. It, it identifies all oil and gas wells in the United States individually by a 14 digit number. So that sounds great. OK, every single piece of data coming in is identified. The problem is that a lot of times people are manually punching that, an engineer may be manually punching that number in 
at the wells at the uh, well site, right? So there's just, there, that human element is tough. Sometimes it, it com- there's nothing there. It, it may be miskeyed, fat fingered, whatever it may be. So again, yeah. this this notion of being valid, being complete, being timely. Uh, is is not just a technology issue. I can have the fastest link set up between my drilling rig and the home office, but if the API number was keyed in incorrectly, then my my whole data feed is is going to have problems. And and that's something that spans technical experience levels or silos, right? So the the false input that might be a UI problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe the experience of inputting that data or the actual keypad. It's hard to use or, or it's hard to read what has happened. It's hard to identify these problems earlier at the source. So if you can push that validity check much sooner, much earlier in the process, or even automate it, right? If you could look them in the GPS coordinate, what that value is, let's get that person out of there, yeah. right? And, and that API uh, identifier, that's a really great use case that people can check up. You don't have to take our word for it. There are open data sets no. on Kaggle about the New York State uh, inventory of these abandoned wells. Mm. So if you put data in wrong, and then as a company that operates a well, you might not be able to track it long term. There are both environmental impacts and then very costly uh, compliance uh, costs that can be hit on you for not closing it up properly or checking in with it. So there are real world impacts to something as small as typing the number in right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, bring it, bring it home for me. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of different uh, data sets right now. We we leverage Facebook, we leverage Twitter, Instagram, yeah. uh, LinkedIn, a number of different things. So we use a lot of different marketing data sets. What are you seeing as you're dealing with those specifically from a data quality standpoint? Anything you can highlight for everybody in that area? Yeah, so there are a couple issues that I think we're in a fortunate position to see see the span of the, the marketplace options and be able to pick best of breed, right? So right now we use a tool called Fivetran uh, to ingest the majority of this data. Uh, and it's fantastic for the repeatability. That's number one, because if I build a brittle pipeline, first it's gonna cost a ton of money, it's gonna take forever. And then these APIs, they like to change, right? More than so than even just your structured data sources. So if I can have a way that's reliably putting my data in the right spot and I don't have some quiet alerts, those are the ones that'll get you, not the big ones, the quiet ones, right? (laughs) Uh, That can screw up your entire process. That's where it starts. So once I get my data in the warehouse, it's in a raw format, first thing I hit is timestamps. You gotta have a plan for that because if you don't apply it consistently, down the road, someone will mix and match stuff. And for marketing, I mean, I think it's important, but I don't think anyone's life's on the line. There's not major, major decisions that we're going to make without, you know, a gut check of some kind. But if you have people just blindly following a dashboard for maybe purchasing decisions about whether you're in or outside of controls for how much of a material you have, you might end up buying a ton of material that's going to go to waste if your timestamps are aligned improperly. So tons of value there. And then from a, in a digital aspect, we do a lot of development of custom applications, which means a lot of the traffic we have coming in is potentially not from a client or from a prospect, from a lead, it's from us just mm. developing our own tools. So cleaning out these sources that it takes an SME to know upfront, like, okay, I know for a fact if it ends in this specific string, that's development traffic. We do that on purpose. Uh, and then there's some reconciliation so that if you change a name down the road, so we changed the name of the, the podcast, right? So we had to reconcile all of our past mm. traffic for the new name. Yeah. So there's just a, a ton that goes into it and then merging those things together in a way that's meaningful, that has actual meaning on a decision you might make, right? So the HubSpot emails that we send out, if I can put that in the context of traffic spikes to the website, we can design our reach out marketing content 
through email to be much more relevant, right? To be much more impactful, to get people to want to click, to want to read, that we're not bugging people. But again, if I align a timestamp wrong or I combine those to different cohorts, then we might find out that this thing that we, we thought was really effective, turns out people kind of hate. So we'll get poor outcomes and it might take a long time for us to figure it out. So even something as, I don't know, approachable as marketing, because I think this is data sets people can mostly get their heads mm -hmm. around. Um, it is rich with pitfalls that you can fall into for data quality. Yeah, and I mean, just hearing that description, it seems like there's a lot of different ways that this this problem or the approach to the problem could be framed up. And even within an individual company, my guess is that you have a lot of different opinions about the definition of what does data quality mean? Is it defined the same way within an organization, within one company, within one business unit, within one group? Or is that definition all over the place and how yeah. to address whatever that definition and ultimately ends up being, that's probably all over the place too and really hard to come to a consensus on. And I think there's some, there must've been something in the, the early century that made people think it was a good idea to put your data engineers in a group separate from everyone else, <laughs> which maybe makes sense if you're like building bridges or like stacking concrete, like specialization makes sense there. But in this environment, if I weren't part and embedded deeply into our sales team, I don't think I don't think I'd be able to effectively identify those more nuanced data quality issues, right? Like if there's a null value, yeah, anyone can see that's empty, that's a problem. But ha having the UTM tracking mix up source and uh, medium, that's not obvious to me, whatever. I clean it up, send it out. You guys would say, okay, here's another trash dashboard. It doesn't work and continue doing whatever you were doing before. Yeah. So. Again, not just a technology problem. You've got to embed, you've got to break down those silos and fix the organizational issues to get to data quality acceptability. Yeah. Well, when you talk about data quality um, acceptability, are there are there certain levels? How how would you define that? So I want I want a certain level of of trust or transparency in the data set, the governance, the provenance of that data. Where did it come from? How did it end up here? Is it what yep. I can really make decisions off of? What what is it? What are you seeing out there, Randy, that's, that is an acceptable level? Because it's probably never going to be perfect, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's something we'll, we'll endeavor to form a more perfect state of our data quality, but I don't think we'll ever really yeah. truly get there. Yeah. Um, I think there are some obvious signs, which it, it's so entwined, entwined with trust, right? If an SME yeah. looks at your dashboard, which is the tip, they don't see all the work that goes into it, and they see a number that to them is obviously wrong, it doesn't matter how technical it was, it doesn't matter how much work you put into it, they don't trust it, it's bad, right? right. Uh, so involving those people early on can be critical. And then there are some total call outs that, you know, they're obvious flags of bad sign. They're big red flags. One is nulls. You see lots of nulls in an environment where they shouldn't have those nulls. Uh, doing that kind of check early on, maybe in like a DBT test scenario, mm -hmm. that's really important. Validity checks, right? So if you have a field that's for states uh, and most of them are legitimate states, but then you have one that's like, uh, Puerto Rico, right? You didn't account for it. You don't have a mapping for it. It breaks your pipelines down the road. Is it a state? Uh, you know, not maybe technically, but in the context of your sales report, maybe you do report it that way. And then you have regions and then you have, you know, everyone has their own definition of like market size. So checking that your individual columns have that, that logical uh, breakdown of your business logic so that they don't have those obvious gaps. Um, and then you have like some more custom checks. So referential integrity is one I hear a lot. Mm -hmm. And in the in the transactional world, you build your system so that they enforce it at the source. You cannot add a value, right? But more in the analytics world, that becomes less and less important and less checked. 
but that doesn't mean that you should wholesale abandon it. There are really important reasons why you might want to check that a product ID has a product description table that it matches to, because otherwise you, you can't find out what you're selling. Like we're selling a ton of some mystery substance, right? Uh, so these are some of the things that come up, but you know, I could keep going on and on and on. I would say the big ones, timestamps. Those are the things that get everyone screwed up. You've got to set a standard for timestamps that are going to uh, sit across your data platform. And then as soon as something lands, you get it. That's the first thing you do with it is get that data, get that timestamp in the proper format. The next are those null checks. And then you have some string stuff. Make sure it's either all uppercase or all lowercase. And from there, it becomes much more uh, business logic specific. I mean, is it, is it unreasonable then based on what you're talking about? Uh, if I've got a transactional system that I'm enforcing referential integrity on, should I be thinking about my analytic system in that same way? Is it, is it even fair to expect that level of uh, rigor around an analytic system or is it, it that's just not even feasible? It's not even in the realm of possibility. I, I think an analytic system is often designed to do things that would not require appropriate checks like that, right? So you might have these flattened tables. You don't normalize as aggressively, right? You're not in an environment of particularly constrained compute or constrained storage. So it it would be nice, like if you had a system like Snowflake, which allows you to uh, define some of these constraints, but they don't necessarily enforce them. Yeah. That might be nice to, to have or maybe be able to configure, but you're gonna pay for it at some point in your analytics stack. So nothing comes for free. And I think a better approach would be some more of this continuous testing of uh, source validity checks that that might get you better results long term. And then you still have that really fast BI. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. Great advice. So you mentioned Snowflake. You spend a lot of time. We spend a lot of time in general um, looking at, you know, is, is there a gap that can be filled in the market? Maybe there's a, a little utility. There's a tool. There's an accelerator, something yeah. that can you know, assist the the Snowflake community and the community in general to get more value. Uh, before, and we I know we teased it up front, we talked about uh, Snowflake Data Profiler. We're going to get to that. But before we do that, can you s just spend a couple of minutes? How do you think about and how does HashMap think about these, these uh, utilities and accelerators? What's important to you and what are you seeing happening out there in the market? Yeah, so... I think it, it helps to go back a little bit in my history with HashMap. I was hired in and started working as an IoT engineer for a data platform that we were building. Oh. It was going to be a total SaaS offering, and it was called Tempest. And the idea was that we were going to make it a lot easier to handle your streaming data, which people still struggle with. And I still, to this day, maintain that that was a fantastic solution to that problem. We, we still get we still get hits on our website on Tempest on a sorry. regular basis. Yeah, people people reach out about it. Yeah. They check the blogs. So there's a demand there. But what I found is it was difficult to get that early adoption because people weren't quite ready, right? We see this maturation occurring in the data stack of finally having a place to put your data uh, in a Snowflake tool. So that allows you to mature the ETL process. And now you have a great Fivetran that can dump that into your Snowflake environment. Now you have something like DBTs ready. So we're getting up to that point where you are ready for a platform like that. But the challenge was... It required you to invest a lot of mental energy into understanding how it worked, how you can use it, and setting up all the pieces to the left and to the right, and then finding the use case. Mm. And it was just too much overhead. So we ended up spinning that down for now. I'm not going to tell anyone. I don't know anything, but I think one day maybe we'll get back to it. That'd be fun. <laughs> they come back but to life. One of the big lessons that I think has been parted at deeply into our culture is that you've got to move fast. you got to mm. fail fast. you got to build things that are relevant on day one without needing a ton of experience. So the big thing when we think about 
building these kind of tools, the Snowflake Inspector, the Snowflake Data Profiler, these kind of things is what is the simplest, most painful problem I can solve quickly? And how can I get feedback on that? Mm. So the big thing is that we focus on solving these impactful, solvable problems, right? We're not going to solve data quality. That's not, that's not achievable. It would take months and months and years to build something that's a full data quality platform, right? We'll spend tons of development effort onto it and we won't fix any of those other problems. And then at the end of it, people will be like, well, whenever Snowflake will get to this eventually, it's like, oh, okay, fine. Uh, so we really want to focus on the solvable problems. The next is that we want to do it fast. I do yeah. not want to spend five developer full-time resources for six months working secretly, working in quiet, and then having some big bang release and then just expect them to come, right? If you build it, they will come. That's not true, right? Yeah. You've got to build well, it where they already you, are. You'll also get disintermediated during that six month period by somebody else, oh, yeah. right? I mean, that, that happens all the time. So it's about that time to market, that speed yeah. and relevancy. So we're going to find, let's, let's do the checklist. We're going to find something that is solvable okay. and is a deeply painful problem, right? If it's not painful, people aren't going to come to you. It's fine. Right. Next, it's got to go fast so that we can get an MVP out there and we can validate our assumptions. There are things I think are cool, but the market won't respond to. What's what's your average time to MVP for these? One to two sprints. Okay. We do two week sprints. Okay. Right. I really like one. The the first ones we built needed a framework. And it's not like framework we're going to go build like bootstrap again, mm -hmm. but we need to establish a way for continuous development, continuous deployment. So because we're not going to spend six, seven, ten full-time resources on this. We're a boutique focused company. We're always going to be doing something, but we can find two weeks here and there. So, you're so the automation is key. So you're complimenting, uh, comprehending the automation and testing functions within these uh, MVPs as well. Absolutely. Okay. So that when we go to the next sprint, we hit the ground running. It deploys itself. It tests itself. It load balances itself. Yeah. And we focus on adding new features because in the last two weeks after we released it, we get all this feedback. People, Google Forms, right? There's no reason for us to build a custom feedback loop. There's a Google Form. Works we have a great. G Suite. Yeah. It does. And people are willing to share if they think they'll be listened to. Mm -hmm. So the best way to show that is deliver results in that next sprint. So we're talking one week, two week, constant delivery. Yeah. These are really important to us. The next is that you should be able to try it hands-on without installing anything. Mm. Maybe the full experience requires a little more buy-in, but you got to add trust, right? We're always thinking about trust. So right when you click on the page, there should be a way without inputting anything, without being an expert to see what you're going to get okay. before you go grab your data, uh, your database name, your schema name, your credentials, put it into something. You got to know that you're going to get something. Show first. me this is going to be worth my while. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not that hard to do if you if you put the user first mm -hmm. in the discussion, mm -hmm. right? If you put the, the data engineer or the other developers who are going to give you a thumbs up for building something cool first, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Send them to the GitHub repo. They read the readme. They can install Docker. They can run Kubernetes, blah, 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 blah. And, and you've done nothing of value to anyone because those people were fine in the first place. They were going to figure something out. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, so, that's great. Yeah. Anything else? These are... Yeah, these are the things that we're, we're really thinking uh, about is that approachability, the speed to market, um, and then solving a small, really solvable problem. On my side, I'm also thinking about how easy is this to market and share with people? Is yeah. this relevant to a partner? Is it have a visual component? People love something visual. Give them an experience. They, they can't get somewhere else, right? Yeah. Not just a cool, you know, Python script that maybe is solvable, but that doesn't resonate with you. We're in sales and marketing. I need something that's going to grasp your attention and you know, it's going to beg a discussion. Yeah. 
And I know, I mean, you know, as a smaller company, I mean, we don't have uh, massive cash stores to go spend on something that may or may not have value. So I think that that eye on cost and doing something quick is always really important. Yeah. I mean, I would love to, we don't like to pr prematurely optimize. We leverage technical debt. And I think in a really intelligent way, a lot of people use that like it's a dirty term, but it's not. You can leverage technical debt to delay the need to implement fully scalable, fully perfect systems in today's world. And just maybe for the first week, for the first release, when you're testing, use a bigger VM. That's okay. Yeah. That's no problem. If we get validity, we'll go, we'll build it more efficiently and then we'll scale up elastically. And if we don't get impact, we'll move on to the next thing so we don't waste time. Now, I, I love the approach. I, I think it uh, it is very, very impactful to do it the way that you're talking about. And you know, now taking that, we've got this massive mountain that we're trying to climb called data quality, uh, which oh, yeah. we talked about a long time, kind of setting the stage. So how did you to take, take us through, how did you arrive at the need to help Snowflake users, Snowflake customers spot and identify data quality issues? Did you see this with other clients? Did you experience this yourself? What's, what's the story? Yeah. So one, when I'm working on like a new marketing piece of content, right, we're going to do a webinar and we're going to teach people how to optimize their sales with digital analytics. I'm almost always looking at a new data set. That's an experience I often have. It's not occasionally I we get a new data source and I work full-time at a company. All the data sets I look at are often new. And so something I've been doing for a long time, it's been kind of, a, call it a secret weapon, is I load that data into Tableau without knowing what it is, even a subset, right? And I will just plot its frequency. How many nulls are in there? How does it distribute? If it's a time column, are we talking about the last 10 years? Are we talking about weekly data? What are we, what are we doing? Yeah. And this process is all, it's independent of the specifics of your data, right? Some dashboards, you need to know what you're looking at, SME experience, pop it up. But other things, anyone, when looking at a fresh data set, you're going to have these questions across your columns. And this process, it's called data profiling. And it's a really almost solved problem in the like Python, pandas, data science space, but something like Snowflake, there's not an out-of-the-box experience. You just have to know to go build that. Yeah. So this is where the idea came from, is that when I'm working on a new Snowflake data set, I can find that I'm always connecting to Tableau, but not everyone has Tableau, right? And then something like Looker, great experience, but I got to write all that LookML first before I can explore things. It's hard to look for things I don't already know to look for. So is there a way that I could just, out of the box, no matter what the data set is, give me that, that, that profile of what this data looks like? And this is related to data quality because the big problems with data quality aren't the problems that are obvious, the nulls. They're really not. The ones that are that are sneaky are we only have six first names in the customer database, only six unique ones. We have a thousand orders, only six unique first names. What's right. going on? There's a secret issue here, maybe downstream or upstream somewhere, excuse me. There's been an issue in how we, we maintain that metadata. So this is where the idea came from. Love the idea. So go through specifically. So I'm I'm going to go out there. So hashmapping.com slash Snowflake Data Profile. There's a couple of different ways to get to it. What yep. is this specifically? What is this thing going to do? How do I use it? And how is it going to help me as a, as a Snowflake customer? And do I have to be a specific type of Snowflake customer? Large Snowflake customer, small, medium? G give me the, the background on this thing. Great question. So uh, the first thing to know is that any size company can leverage this. If this is your first day on Snowflake, you know what? Profile the sample data that's mm. in there because you're probably trying to learn. And who wants to go through a dumb demo example? Answer your own questions, right? Stoke that curiosity. Yeah. So 
this tool, you go to the website and we have a very simple form for you to fill out. You put in your username, your credentials, right, for Snowflake. Hold on account. right there. Credentials. Uh -oh. What's what's going on? Are, are we storing anything here? Give, give, it, give me the background. Yeah, absolutely not. So going back to some of the way that we, we do things, we absolutely could have set up a login system. Yeah. Maybe in the future we will if there's a lot of rich experiences we wanted to add. Yeah. But when you talk login, when you talk people's yeah. private data security, especially when it's multi-tenant, mm. lots of people, lots of organizations coming in, that's a lot of infrastructure to set up yeah. to do well. So instead of handling that, this is what we decided. We're going to encrypt all the traffic. It's going to be HTTPS all the way through. Got to have that when you're when you're transmitting important data across the wire. Next step, it's all stateless. All right. We do not know what your credentials are after we've executed the query. We don't know what your data look like. The profiles, you'll notice, they are not saved. We don't generate a file and send it like to your email inbox and we store it on S3. None of that. You load the page, you enter it, you submit, boom, you get the report. Right. But it only exists in your browser. If you reload the page, the report's gone. You got to generate it again. I like it. Okay. Last thing, it's a three-pronged approach. I really I really care about the security question because it's valid. The whole tool is open source. So mm -hmm. if you're really concerned, you want to see how we're doing things, we've written the code in such a clean, readable way that I think anyone, even if you're not a Python developer, go read it because it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense of how we're executing the queries and how we're generating your report. And if you don't trust us, which is a fair thing to do, you don't know us maybe, go ahead and run it in your own environment. Stacker base, we have simple, readable instructions for this, even if you're not a developer. However, if all of that fails, you don't have to enter any data because we have a sample for you. So you come in, click the button, see what you got, maybe give us a call. Okay. Are the just curious, the reports are static or there's some level of interactivity with them? Yeah, so there's some that's a depending on who you ask, yeah. they'll give you a different question. It is a static report. Um in that the data is not traversing the wire or talking. Once you have the report, it's on your computer. Yeah. You can turn off the Wi-Fi. It will still work. Okay. However, it is interactive in the way that a Tableau dashboard is interactive. So you can hover, you can filter, uh, you can inspect correlations, which are really interesting. And they have some really dynamic uh, user input on that page. But at the end of the day, it's just static HTML, JavaScript, and CSS running in your local browser. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds really easy to try out. If I don't want to try it out with my credentials, I've got something out there. I've got an existing profile I can take a look at kind of take it for a virtual spin without even using my uh, Snowflake table. What about any limitation? I've got a million row Snowflake table. I've got a billion row Snowflake table. I've got a, what, what are the limitations yeah. there right now? Yeah, so right now, because uh, we talked about technical debt, right? And so this is the result of sprint and a half, maybe two sprints right now. So this is first release, fresh, ready to go. And we're already solving problems. Um, so to ensure that we don't overload the server, because we are just using a, I don't know, a, smallish virtual machine, we have limited all requests because we've had quite a lot of traffic to 10,000 rows. And that gives you a sample of it. We're not doing a pure sampling. All the statistic nerds on here know that preferably you would do a uniform random sampling of the 10,000. Again, that takes too long. Snowflake's much more optimized to give you a limit of the top 10,000. Okay. That is for now. Now, we've got our uh, infrastructure team right now looking at how we can uh, do auto scaling on this so that we're not constantly spending peak and we can set some controls and maybe dynamically impose a lower limit. And there's no reason we can't go up to a million, 10 million, even for dedicated uses that aren't for like just a public internet to use. We can help you configure this to really have no limit. Whatever memory you want to have on the box, that's going to be the limit for your profile. So uh, right now, 10,000, that's the short answer. But Keep coming back because I expect as soon as we get the auto scaling and alerting set up, we'll be able to make this dynamic. Oh, great call. So 
you, you mentioned earlier, I just want to go back to that real quick. So if I don't want to run it in the, in the app online on that page, I can give you a call. You will come in and help me work through it in my own environment uh, outside of that uh, application, if you will. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and the kind of stuff that we like to do with customers, it's rare that that's the one and only thing they want. Like mm -hmm. if that's all you want, you could just message like me on LinkedIn and I, I'll spend an hour with you. Yeah. It doesn't take that long. Yeah. But if you really want to take a look at your data, the, the sources of your data quality problems, if you want to delight your analysts with these kind of experiences that bring the context to them, rather than enforcing them to learn a ton of bash scripting and Python and maybe different cloud engineering skill sets, and you just want the data to show up like magic, you just want the plumbing to be done, mm -hmm give us a call. We can help you with that in ways that would accelerate what you could do on your own. You're moving a lot faster. We basically thrown jet fuel into your 2020 data strategy. And I think that's where we really thrive. I love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it sounds great. So Snowflake Data Profiler, everybody needs to go check that out. So I've got this visibility now into my, you know, let's say a table, a few tables, a bunch of tables within Snowflake. I've identified there are issues, there's correlations that are, whatever those things are. Yeah. Does this thing help me fix them or avoid them? What, tell me what the next step beyond the visibility side is. So I don't know that we ever want to go fully on that loop because okay. it's it's like the 80-20 rule, right? The first 80% of this is a problem that should have been solved a long time ago. And we're just gluing great components together. The last 20%, the last mile, that's really kind of user specific. I don't think that's something that we would necessarily endeavor to solve in this capacity. Maybe in the future, we start talking that Tempest talk, it, we'll see. Mm. So what you do with this information, it's twofold. One is of course data quality checks, but it's not just for the data quality person, it's for the data scientist. Mm. So you have a data scientist who's looking for correlations to build some kind of prediction on. There are some simple correlation uh, visualizations that we have in there. We have a confusion matrix that'll show you if two fields are correlated in interesting ways that can help you jumpstart your iteration process. So your right. data scientist doesn't have to spend her really valuable time doing that basic Tableau stuff that I was always doing. She can just jumpstart from a point of an inclination, like, hey, it kind of looks like order volume is tied to time of day. Let's see how that you know has an impact if we run a more advanced model. So it's like a starting point as well. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Now, if I want to, I guess, get ahead of, and, and we talked about this earlier, I guess, and, and a lot of it goes back to that manual side. Of, there, It's not so much the technology side, but Randy, any recommendations for somebody to say, okay, this profiler thing looks great. I'm identifying some issues. Maybe I'm proactively uh, putting some things together on the data science side or data engineering side, but is there something I can do, like you said, upstream? that I can get ahead of the data quality issues, but it just, it doesn't have to be specific to data profiling, but I guess what would yeah. be those top one or two or three recommendations you'd have uh, for folks that said, I, I really want to figure out how to try to get this solved so it doesn't occur in the first place. Yep, so I, I would say there are two really practical, go do it right now type things I can recommend. And then there's some more general culture changes okay. that you can do that can instill this and make it part of the fabric of your organization. Okay, the first practical thing is if you're building custom ETL and, and you're spending resources time on this and things break often or, or there's limitations, take a look at a managed offering. Look at something like Fivetran, Stitch, Matillion. They can save you not only upfront cost in freeing up your resources to work on more value add work, but they also just, they have the scale to be able to solve these problems dynamically in a way that your 
core team, unless you're focused in this space, if this space yeah. is not a competitive advantage for you, outsource it. It's going to be a lot cheaper. It's getting cheaper every day. It's a commodity space. So find the tool that can just get that done. And that reliability, that's the foundation of everything else you'll do in data quality. Because if those sources come in bad, it, you're already fighting a losing battle. So second thing, yeah. I would recommend using a tool like DBT, probably DBT, right? The reason is it has the testing, the lineage documentation. It is open source. It is dead simple to learn. Don't let the word Python scare you because that's just how it's distributed. You can use DBT as a SQL user. If you can write a select statement, you can build a massive SQL pipeline that's going to scale to enterprise scales. And large companies, you know, use this technology. And I automatically, so I automatically pick up the lineage, like you said, with DBT. Automatically, okay. out of the box, okay. right? There's so you don't have to do a ton of behavior change of like, well, we got to format it this exact way and write these docs like you can extend it absolutely and i know people who go very far and they do their whole catalog and discovery layer with these dbt docs but even if you just use it for the incredible efficiency gains that it has from not having to write ddl and you know i'll go way into the weeds on this but even if you just use it for that and let your environment be repeatably deployable that will solve things i cannot tell you how many times we've been called in when there's a view that someone wrote two years ago, but they were a rock star and they left and they got a great job on the West Coast and no one knows how it was put together and they don't know how it works. And the tool that they're on, whatever database it is, is at end of life yeah. and they're doing a cloud migration. What do we do? This, that's insane. And, and all the changes that made it work, there were band-aids here, duct tape there, and it was all done manually. None of it's in version control. None of it's repeatable. So when you move to something like DBT, this helps with your data quality problems because everything is repeatable. And if you only allow deployments to occur from your continuous integration, from your automation layer, you can ensure that if tomorrow all your databases were taken down, something happened, uh, uh, there was an electrical short of some kind, you can redeploy it in minutes. I just asked this on a phone call mm. with someone, how long would it take you? They said, we couldn't do it. Wouldn't be possible. We'd have to start from scratch. Yeah. I, and show them right here. I'll drop all my production tables live for you. Now I can say that easily because I don't have a, a huge SWAT team of analysts looking at it, right. but I would feel confident doing this to even large organizations. So those are the two big ones. Culture wise, yeah. you got to build a culture of trust. You got to quit siloing as much as you can. Embed your technical users with the business teams as much as you can and make sure that you get rid of this culture of throwing it over the fence. Well, the data is clean, so it's over the fence. And now it's data science's problem. They open a ticket to get hold of me and that kind of culture is always going to be antithetical to good data quality. Now it makes sense. Makes perfect sense. So are you, so I'm, I'm uh, all these snowflake users out there. Uh, are you looking for feedback on this thing right now? we got all these folks coming in. Do you want this feedback on what's working? What's not? Give me some other ideas. Uh, if so, how can somebody get that feedback to you on snowflake data profiler? Badly. Yeah. So going back to one of the core tenets that we, we find very valuable in delivering these solutions is you've got to have a mechanism for feedback and it's got to be easy and it's got to be anonymous. So we have an anonymous Google Forms feedback link at the very top of the profiler.snowflakeinspector.com. You can click that. It'll take you to a Google Form. We've got some questions, but it's free form. You don't have to answer any of them. I think they're all optional. So let us know what you think. And if your response is, hey, this sucks. Uh, I hate you. Um, Hashtrap has a stupid logo. Like, give us the feedback because one thing we thrive on is even non-constructive feedback. We will make use of it in some way, even if it is to, uh, I don't know, make fun of you on a podcast. So uh, um, go ahead and, and please let us know because we want to improve this. And I know that can be, in the past, you might have gone through the effort of giving really detailed feedback on something and then you heard nothing. 
But here we hope that you give really good feedback, valuable stuff. We can prioritize it. And you come back a week later and you're like, oh man, this button is now more rounded or this is a better shade of blue. Yeah. Like they're really hearing me and you're kind of part of the discussion. Yeah. Or you can open a pull request. If you're a coder, please jump in. It's an open source project. Let's go. Let's go. And, and you said uh, earlier too, if somebody wants to hit you up on LinkedIn, feel free to do that if they want to go non-anonymous, I guess. Hey, what is, yep. uh, what, so what's next? You got any roadmap items? Have you already gotten some feedback that you say, Hey, I've either I, I need to do some things to the Snowflake data profiler, or are you thinking about other data profilers for other platforms? What what's next in the uh, in the cookbook here? So the classic problem, right? We we have unlimited opportunities and very limited time. So I think for the the inspect or excuse me the uh, the profiler, the big next step is a link in the top explaining these security concepts because it's the number one feedback I'm getting is how do I know my data is secure? Yeah. How can I trust you to put this in? You're going to do uh, so, like a readme or something like that? You know, not really readme. Okay. I'm thinking like a pop-up, okay. right? And not, not when you come up, but just like a nice little orange, something catches your eye up here of like, why trust us or security, yeah. something up Got there it. that can give you, you know, it's not going to be perfect. There's never a guarantee in the world, but you can know that we are at least thinking about these things. We've addressed the major concerns. Uh, so we'll put that in there, I think, as a next step. And then there's... You know, I want to do the scaling. I want to lift that restriction of 10K and I want to go further up. As far as other projects, this is, I mean, it's demonstrating a hypothesis we wanted to test. Would people, if we give them the right trust context, allow us to execute queries anonymously against their Snowflake environment? Because if the answer is yes, we can do some incredible stuff that normally we can only do for clients. Mm -hmm. And this, this unleashes a whole host of health checking that we do all the time for people, all the monitoring. And we've got kind of a suite of health checks coming up that I think are going to be really compelling. So one question we get asked a lot is, is my environment secure? Have I have I configured this in ways that are obviously going to cause me problems? We can't do everything, right? We're not going to capture every nuance, but there's some major red flags that are very easy to put in a nice visual experience that we can put sampled and we can get feedback on. Have I sized my warehouses correctly? Should I scale up or scale out on this warehouse? Do I need to do anything? Uh, all of that kind of stuff, really easy to set some simple rules together and visually explain that to you once you know what you're looking at in Snowflake. So I think this is going to be the class of things that we get into. And the one I'm most excited about is helping you understand how your data tables are used. Because a big uh, piece of feedback I've gotten in the past is I'm a data engineer. I, I, I build these tables. I put a lot of passion into it. And the one thing I want to know is, are they actually using it? Well, Snowflake captures every query against everything in your environment. So I can show you what are your top use tables? What are the ones that are maybe not used at all? And what are some things you should consider just cleaning up? This is trash. Hasn't been used in a long time. Uh, all that information exists in Snowflake, but we're going to try to pull it together in a single environment that makes it really easy to make decisions off of. And it doesn't require some Python scripting or deploying to Kubernetes or like being an expert and jumping in six different tools at once. We're not doing that. It's all about the experience. Man, that sounds great, Randy. Any uh, any little tidbits you want to drop on Snowflake Inspector for the Snowflake Inspector fans out there that are doing oh, some yeah. cool visualizations on objects, users, and roles? Anything you want to share? So right now, <laughs> as we're speaking, I have an open pull request for me that does folder level filtering of your objects to your roles. I'm not believing this one. Absolutely. So you 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 put in the inspector and it shows all your roles and users. So that access pattern and then every object in your Snowflake environment, including the things Snowflake does not have a UI to show you. We can show you oh, things wow. that normally you have to know code to mm -hmm. see. And then one question you might ask is, OK, I see a warehouse. 
which in this mess of hundreds of roles and users, which objects here can access this warehouse? And up till now, it's been a little backwards. We had to prioritize for what role, uh, if you click on a role, which objects can you ask? We can now go the other way. So you click on that warehouse and I've been playing with it internally. We found a couple bugs from the early days of our setup that have not been appropriately addressed. I found some weird behavior in that in Snowflake, if I created something with a specific role and then I delete that role later, what happens to that object? It obviously cannot be owned by the same role. Where does it go? Who yeah. inherits it? Yeah, You'll have to go check that out well, at the snowflakeinspector.com. We're adding new features all the time. Uh, by the time you hear this, it will be up. Oh, you're dropping, them, you're dropping them this week. Very nice. Continuously. Awesome. I'll have it out by, you know, in the next half yeah. hour. Hey, great conversation. Uh, Snowflake Data Profiler sounds exciting i think there's a there's some really interesting things like you talked about to really get a, a better handle on data quality so awesome topic what do you think about a lightning round i don't think you and i have actually done a lightning round together oh, have we man, have we done me? one no, i don't we think haven't. we have i know no we just talked business you want to do one yeah let's do let's it let's go are we both going to do it or just one of us back and forth back yeah and, okay uh, all right we'll alternate you ask me answer right. answer and then i'll ask you all right all right uh let's go uh Favorite destination spot in the United States? Okay, so this is definitely not like a destination for most people, but there is a, uh, a farm in Indiana where uh, I grew up, uh, a family friends of mine, and it's the most gorgeous place. I see them post pictures on Facebook, even just after mowing the lawn. They have horses, they have barns, and I have just the best memories there. So whenever I can, I like to make a summer trip. This summer we didn't get to go back. I love to go out to that that farm. So that's my favorite spot. What about you? I will have to, I think, choose Glacier National Park in Montana. I've been, I've not wow. been that much, been two or three times. Uh, highly recommend the hike to Iceberg Lake. Uh, it's fantastic. It is gorgeous. It's, a, you know, and, and I live in Houston, right? So it's the, the flatwoods here. I mean, there, there is no yes. undulation in, in the ground at all. So to oh, yeah. be able to go someplace like that, that is just absolutely breathtaking in, in the beauty, uh, that's a favorite one for me. Okay. So what is something you can't live without? <laughs> I would say uh, a, a full pot of coffee in the morning. I have My man. to have a full pot of coffee in the morning. Um, I am also going to say coffee. <laughs> like I, I didn't think you could say it too, but it's got to be coffee. Yeah. And out of all the habits I have, you know, I, I sit more than I should, probably should exercise more, eat more vegetables. Coffee's one thing. I take it black. You can drink it doesn't appear to be any sort of major health concerns with drinking as much coffee. Like imagine I'm addicted to soda. Yeah. That would be the worst. So coffee, thank goodness I can have as much as I want. Yeah, no, it's awesome. All right. This one, uh, let's, let's try this. How, um, dogs, cats, fish, birds, something else or, or nothing. Oh man. Um, I think the classic response is dogs. We have two dogs. Um, but as I get older, like, you know, we have older dogs too. And when they're gone, maybe we'll take a break and do a little traveling and maybe, I don't know. So uh, I guess I don't know how to answer that other than traditionally it's been dogs, but maybe nothing is on the corner. I still like dogs though. I like other people's yeah. dogs. So I'll, I'll answer the other way. So for the first probably, so I've been married for close to 30 years, 29. For the first 20 years or so, maybe a little bit less, it was all kids. We have five children, right? So it, was, it, it wasn't it was dogs catch fish, fish birds or anything. It was kids. 
And uh, then as the kids grew up, we ended up getting a couple of dogs. And so we're, we are a full on uh, dog family and, you know, working from home a lot. There are times I'm sure where you and everybody else we're talking to, here's some barking in the background. So I'm, I'd go dogs. Uh, so I didn't know kids were an option. I, I, I will take the three-year-old downstairs. <laughs> yeah. She's the best yeah. out of everything. My, yeah. my best friend in the whole world. She's a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Uh, how about this one? Go. What is your go-to website or mobile app? Ooh, good one. Um, so right now, you know, we're looking at buying a house. So I've been on Redfin a lot. They've got a really nice like house interface and they have the recommendations, but they don't suck. Everyone else's recommendations are just trash, random, like regionally relevant stuff. So I've been doing that. And then uh, mobile app. Um, I like Spotify a lot. Constantly got Spotify. Gotta have Spotify going. Yeah, what about you? No, Spotify is great. I will go. I'll, I'll give you one of each. I'm going to say for mobile app, I... I got to say, I probably spend way too much time in LinkedIn. I, I, okay. It, yeah, it's business oriented, but that is that's the one that I, I spend a lot of time in. On the website side, though, uh, a go to for me on the weekend. I do a little bit of fishing. There's a there is a a fishing calendar, and what it does is it measures the activity of fish based on the moon cycle. Okay, really? so full moon. Is it dependent on the moon cycle? It, it is. Now, I'm not going to tell you that when it says it's optimal conditions, rated 95, that this is the time every fish is going to bite during this three-hour window that it always works because it does not. Or okay. Maybe I'm just a really bad fisherman. Um, but yeah, I go, that's go, this fishing calendar kind of moon cycle. When's the big feeding time where potentially that's kind of my go-to on the weekend. Okay, so I'll tell you. We're right now we have an electric car, which we love, but it's got a very limited range, 75 miles, and it doesn't have a great charging network. It's from BMW, right? So we've been looking at the new Tesla Cybertruck. Got it pre-ordered. Oh, wow. I'm getting that bad boy. Oh, but when goodness. I get it, I have this fantasy of we're going to go camping at one of those national parks and I'm going to fly fish for the first time. And so I've been watching these videos on how to do it. Super complex. Yeah. Like just just to get the lines tied right and all the different bait and there's like multiple hooks and then you've got to read the water and all this stuff. So um one day, hopefully in a year or so, I'll be like, yeah, you know what? I'm a pretty good fly fisherman. You can you could start practicing now just in your yard. I mean, you don't have to be on the water or anything to start practicing the fly fishing. I would totally agree. I've done it one time and really? it it takes it does take some getting used to. It's it's pretty challenging. Now, do you ever have you snapped off the the lures with your cast? No, I have not. No. So that's something I was watching a video that they say that's the thing to watch out for. Because a lot of people will go back and they'll they'll crack the whip, right? In yeah. a way. And it'll snap off at the end. So you've got to do this really fluid motion, keep it in a straight line. So yeah, maybe, yeah. you know what? Maybe I'll uh, invest in a kit and start practicing. Yeah, where, where I fish uh, periodically, I'll actually see some some guys up on the land practicing. Fl- and, and I'm I'm where I fish is a lake, so it's not yeah. like moving water or anything, which I think is more ideal for fly fishing. Uh, when I fly fished, it was in Montana on a on a, I think it was a Gallatin River. I can't remember which oh, one. I think man. It, yeah, pretty pretty nice, um, but. The, but the, these guys are just practicing on on dry land. They're not even on the water, just just practicing the motion and everything. So you could you could probably get some level of proficiency even before you get out on the on the river or whatever. Man, I'll be doing that. Yeah. I'm not a golfer, but I think I could probably get into some fishing. Yeah. All right, last question here on right. the, the lightning round: best meal this week. Uh, okay. Um, so I would have to say, and I I actually had we had this for dinner, and then I actually. Uh, redid it for lunch as well, heated up. Um, right. My wife did some uh, combination chicken and beef uh, meatballs on a on a uh, crusty roll with a, okay. a tomato sauce, mozzarella cheese, little parsley and everything. And it was, 
it was unbelievable. I mean, it was even, it was even better the second day, heated up and and you know kind of redone. So for me, that, that was the meal of the week. Oh my gosh, that sounds fantastic. Oh, oh one other thing on that. So yeah, um, the 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 way that the the bread was, you know, so you have these three meatballs. I actually did the bonus ball, the four meatball. Didn't fit in the bun, but I was able to power through. It didn't. It didn't. Uh, it didn't. <laughs> Get the best of me. This yeah. this man, he's yeah. an untold yeah. uh, gluttony I, I, of the fourth I'm, meatball. I'm a beast on the, on the meatball sandwich, man. How about you, Randy? What best meal this week? Uh, okay, so my sister's birthday was this last week, and so you know we had her over and we did dinner, and my wife made this chili, new chili recipe. We are across the board ready for fall. I don't know if it's the quarantine or what, but I'm just I want some leaves, I want some pumpkin spice. Get my you know get my my uh, sweaters out right. Yeah. So we made chili and it was fantastic. New recipe, a lot less like peppers and raw onions. My wife likes those big chunks of stuff. I don't like that. <laughs> I keep it simple. A little turkey, yeah. you know, ground turkey yeah. and beef yeah. or, or uh, beans. Sorry, not beef. Come on. That's the way to go. It was a fantastic. We had it again last night for dinner. We also had it early in the week. So two dinners <laughs> out of that one. Very nice. No, I'm a, I'm a big chili fan. And, and like you said, that does get you in the mood for fall. It is right around the corner, hopefully. So, kind of, you know, I wouldn't mind a little football as yeah. well. And just, yeah. I'm missing that. I Maybe know. also nostalgic for, you know, older times when you could go out I and know. do things. I know. Yeah. Man, great, great fun, Randy. I think that's it on the lightning round. Uh, let's let's hope that the HashMap on Tap community enjoyed the conversation on data quality, and everybody will try out the Snowflake data profiler. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed the conversation. Huge thank you to everyone who listens in uh, on a regular basis. We really appreciate everyone. We would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out at HashMap Inc dot com slash hash map on tap just get out there you'll you'll see it we would absolutely love to have any feedback or comments uh, we'd love to hear from you we will see you soon on an up, another episode really soon take care thanks for listening to hash map on tap be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives if you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap ONTAP page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.